Hi, and welcome to another episode of Rule of Carnage, where myself, Glenn Ford, a games designer and developer, chats to this guy, Mike Hutchinson, who is also a games developer and designer. Um, and we talk about designing better miniatures games, all the bits and pieces of designing better miniatures games, the mechanics, the models. And today we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about the... Um, the story, the the world building that goes on around maybe uh, the the nuts and bolts of designing a game, um, partly because um, Mike, you're right in the 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 thick of a little bit of world building of your own uh, with Hobgoblin. Now, obviously, you've created a a, a vibrant post-apocalyptic world with Gaslands. You've created a, a distant sort of high sci-fi world of a billion sons and now you're um working through the process of creating a whole fantasy world universe mm -hmm. um with uh with hobgoblin um obviously a lot of people do their world building their fluff creation their their micro narratives and, and bits and pieces um and it's something that people can spend quite a lot of time working on um, so we're going to try and have a chat about uh, where it clicks into the crunchier bits of designing, um, how much of it you want, the things that are tricky about it, and where exactly Mike is in his current sort of process doing it. So maybe we can open up um, having a little chat about where you are with Hobgoblin and, and what you're sort of working through at the moment with, with that world building. So Hobgoblin's a fantasy um, underground world, right? Yeah, I guess I'm gonna preface this conversation by saying I am not an expert in world building. Um, and the more I get into it, the more I realize what phenomenal amount of resources and thought other people have put into this. I suppose probably more from like fiction writing, but also I guess increasingly video game design as well. Um, but I find this part of the process um, as fascinating as all the other parts. I'm just less practiced at it because for whatever reason, I find myself in idle moments inventing um, new games and new game systems. Whereas I'm sure there are imaginative people who are using their imaginations to continually invent new uh, new worlds and new kind of fantasy environments or... or and yeah. those people, those people are probably uh, like me, uh, role-playing uh, GMs, and are maybe coming up with a cool idea for a new role-playing campaign or a new uh, role-playing setting that they that they might want to play in. And I suppose yeah. that, like that, as a first point, is I suppose how, to some degree, I approach the general problem of world building, which is that, um, and my um, my uh, chum. Sean Sutter has said this to me several times. He sort of says, as a game designer, you're sort I sort of see us as GMs, where like we have to create the sort of playground in which people are going to play their games and in which their imaginations are going to run riot. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I think I I mean I don't I don't want to generalize, but I think there is a certain Go number on. of um, thwarted novelists um sort of dotted around in the 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 game game writing world and and you do sometimes come across a game and you go i i don't i don't want to go through this level of world building in order to get to the the crunchy meat of the game i mean personally maybe uh, 
I guess one thing that strikes me is that war games, particularly where there's a DIY element to it, benefit from a little deeper fluff than perhaps a, a pull out of the box board game. I think I think it's yeah. I think that's that's an interesting one, and I think that there is okay. So in my opinion, there's a difference between the level of world building that I want from a character driven skirmish game like Malifaux. Hmm. versus the level of world building I really want in a game that's maybe a little bit looser um, into what I'm creating, like, say, Warhammer. And so in a game of Warhammer, I'll often have a, a, a hero, a general, a leader, a mage or whatever, who isn't a character who's established in the world. And I might have an army that I want to be doing something a little bit weird with. I've got a, 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 a goblin's army. Um, which are all forest goblins and and they're led by this uh, Romeo and Juliet goblin who fell in love with an elf and he's him and the elf are eloping and they've got to fight their way you know through other elves and I created a whole world for them and, and you know and, and a whole situation and I want the Warhammer world to be quite loose and vague in parts because I want to go off and do something weird I want my frost ogres you know to be a possibility in that world mm. whereas in something like Malifaux all of my guys have got names and they've got, you know, backgrounds and they've got relationship with, with the other guys that are on the tabletop and they feel a certain way about that person. And I, and I don't have, have too much sort of input on that. And I know whether it's a personal thing because I tend not to convert Malifaux models. I get them out of the box, I paint them up, I put them on the table. I tend to rip apart you know, uh, a whole Warhammer army and green stuff and build and create it. And also when I'm writing a Warhammer army that's, that's that much more in depth, I want to create a story for it. So I know personally, I think that there's actually, there is a continuum here and there can be such a thing as too much world building depending on what's driving your game and, and how you're sort of catching people's hobby imagination and, and all sorts of things like that. I mean, as a lot of these yeah, things it's interesting it's interesting because i suppose like i sort of came from i came from the rich worlds of warhammer and so forth in my gaming heritage and that's had like 30 plus years of development leading into it um and then sort of my first experience was the very setting light offspray blue books so two two games in that setting both two games in that format where um the setting material was deliberately restricted to being a very small number of words to um partly to fit the very sort of inexpensive format but i think also partly to provide a lot of space for miniature agnostic games to sort of give the keys to the kingdom over to the to the player and be like well the purpose of these kinds of games is to let your imagination run free, not for me to define over hundreds of pages all of the specific towns and cities and which roads lead to where and how many goblins there are on each road and so forth. Mm. Um, but I also think that they're also self-contained games. And so um, there is, I think, more necessity for richer world building in a game that is intended to last for longer or have a series of products expanded into it. So I think that, <clears throat> you know, with Gaslands as it was originally written, like it just needed to point at a genre 
evoke that genre very crisply in the reader's mind and then reinforce and hammer that genre in on the table with all the rules. But like, I love the fact that I managed to catch people's attention really early on and people quite often introduce the setting by saying, oh yeah, so Gaslands, it's like a post-apocalyptic future where the space race, the space race carried on. And instead of, um, you know, instead of the space race finishing in the 60s, it carried on and we landed on Mars and then Mars seceded and then there was a war. And like just that one moment where I created a timeline at the beginning of the book, which I'm pretty sure, I can't remember where I stole that from. It's probably, probably from Warhammer Army books, which always have those like ridiculously overblown timelines. But started with that little timeline and that first divergence sort of seems to be enough to catch people's attention. And then their their imagination starts spinning out and they can, they can sort of be like, oh, okay, it's a sort of 70s space race thing that leads me into 80s action movies. I kind of, I can see Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger already in this in this movie. Like I can kind of, and so I think that was like, one of, I think, the flavors of world building that I'm actually very, very strenuously trying to avoid in Hobgoblin, but worked really nicely in A Billion Sons was like finding the little tiny genre chord to play on your little tiny piano and just be like, pring, it's like that. And everyone goes, oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean. And then just smattering enough sort of seasoning across the book, um, particularly uh, with A Billion Sons which also has, I think, to a degree, a sort of, it's like, it's space, but something, something, and the but something, something is corporations are arguing over space. And then throughout the book, I kind of found ways to reinforce that theme in the captions of the photos and in the names of the special rules and so forth. But with Hobgoblin, I'm trying a bit more of a and it's odd because probably I don't really know exactly, but probably Hobgoblin will be a single rule book like these other two games, and it will be in and of itself a lovely object. But that because the game is tapping into the great richness of fantasy army miniatures that exist, um, not just in Warhammer and, and Mantic and stuff, but now like the insanely amazing ranges that come out of all of these 3D. Um, 3D print uh, sort of de um, intended designers. Um, like I'm working working with a few of them, like Lost Kingdom and um, One Page Rules and uh, Highland Miniatures and stuff. And like these armies look amazing. Um, and so because I'm sort of playing into all that richness and there has to be reasons and explanations for all these really colorful, unique creatures and goodies and baddies to be interacting. Like I feel like, Maybe it's partly the expectation. I feel like people expect a fantasy world to be a bit more rich and fleshed out than perhaps, um, you know, a science fiction. Science fiction novels can be very ideas based. And as long as the idea is amazing, it sort of doesn't matter what the rest of the furniture is. Whereas it seems less true in fantasy, like fantasy has to be a bit sort of squidgier and realer and or, 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 or more lived in, uh, not lived in, more like realized. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious about this uh, to a degree because it's like the thing with Gaslands is that Gaslands is sort of post-apocalyptic. Post I can't say post-apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic vehicular, you know, combat. So that's Mad Max and that's Death Race, and that's mm. pretty much that's that's pretty much your whole genre, more or less, right there. 
Um, and so once you say that, it's like, well, okay, it's 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 them. It's somewhere in between the two of those. That's about where it is. And now it can be its own thing because there's only three of them, and it's in between these other two. Mm. But then you say, okay, it's it's fantasy, and then it's like, okay, well, okay, so we've got you know Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, and you know the, the, such a massive you know genre that fantasy isn't anything like as you know um high level sort of definitional as it doesn't tell you as much it's not as information packed although i I oddly do think that fantasy in general like there there's a few i think it's a bit more homogenous than perhaps science fiction is but maybe that's just because i'm better read in science fiction that's probably just my bias yeah i i think that you know I, I think that fantasy, I think, is certainly a much broader field than post-apocalyptic, vehicular-based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's possibly part of. I don't know. I, I don't know because it is you're you're the one in the middle of sort of writing it. I think possibly that might be one of the drivers as to why you feel like. Hot yeah, you have right. I feel like I have to. I have to fight a bit harder to define what is particular and unique about it. Yeah, and yeah. I suppose I, I came up with with a concept fairly early on, which is um, all right. I'm going to set it underground, and then I'm going to try and find ways to solve the obvious problem, which is what an army game underground. I could understand a dungeon delving game, or a you know, or a role playing game, or those kinds of things being underground. But what like a whole army? And then I thought, well, yeah, actually, because if we set it like in the entirety of the sort of 1800 miles that there are between the surface of the planet and the like molten core, then you've got loads of space. And not only have you got loads of space, you've got loads of space in like 360 degrees. So you've actually got like a like a billion time larger world in a single planet than you could just by using the, the surface of the of the apple. Um, and so then I got excited about, okay, well then maybe there's these massive caverns, caverns big enough to hold cities, caverns big enough to hold entire oceans, like what goes on in this underground world? Um, and I suppose I got, you know, I, I got, I felt that there's not enough even unique in that opening gambit to be like, oh, okay, I definitely want to play this game rather than another fantasy game. Like it doesn't, it doesn't grab me enough. It's not unique enough. So I wanted to start to drill down, boom, boom, into these caverns and find out what was there and sort of discover what the unique richness was that was lying underneath the sort of initial premise. Um, And I guess I also like speaking personally for this project like the reason that I'm going much deeper into the world building and fleshing this setting out is that I can like um the the publisher I'm working with um is excited for me to blow this world out and is happy that the page count exists to make it happen as opposed to some of the other the the Osprey things I've worked on where it, it wasn't requested it wasn't required it wasn't um needed now i one of the things i found that i've I've really enjoyed um when we've sort of worked together is that personally if i'm writing sort of uh, a background a bit of world building my process tends to go a little bit along the lines of here's a thing that i want to do that i think would be interesting so I, i'm putting together some factions i want a faction to do x because mm-hmm. i think that'd be an interesting way for it to interact with the rules 
given the overall setting that we're in, in order for that faction to act like X, let's come up with an explanation and the explanation is going to be Y. So, you know, I've got some seaborne uh, a, a sort of ship combat game, you know, boarding game, and I want somebody who, you know, can jump around from location to location because I think that movement will be interesting. Okay, well, he's clearly some sort of swashbuckling piratey dude and he mm -hmm. swings through the rigging. So these guys are all quite daring, dewy kind of guys. And there we go. That's my process of writing sort of background and world creation that seems like a good place to take a quick break whereas you've often you know we've talked about the fact that you've put together like mini rpgs um to to guide you through the sort of the rules writing process sometimes and when you know we first sort of started working together on gaslands you sort of came in with these the sponsors and you had sort of a story for them who they were who slime was what slime's fans were like what her mm. her her teams were like and then it's like okay well that's interesting because it's quite fun to try and write some mechanics that explains why their team would act like that and why their mm. team would act like that given you've written the story um so it's it to me it's quite interesting that you you quite you seem to come at the process a little bit sort of in the opposite way for me that you sometimes like to write do a bit of world building and go okay well here's the the world what sort of explanations for these things happening within that world do we need to write mechanics and rules in order to explain so is that sort of part of why you've sort of you've come at hobgoblin in that direction and is now that you are sort of getting deeper in i think it's quite interesting that you seem to be getting deeper in the world building now at a point where the mechanics and rules of Hobgoblin seem quite nailed down, relatively speaking. It feels to me like you're doing world building much more post rules creation than you did for Gaslands, for example. Yeah, and, and, thing, and in this case, actually, although I'm doing, I, I'm tempted to fiddle around the edges, like as I'm as I'm building out the pantheon of deities, abyssal gods that live in this in this this realm like i'm tempted to start messing around with the spells which i i might do because you know what the spells haven't been the you know they haven't been play tested to the nth degree and i don't think there's there's a lot of terrible damage that can get done there um so i'm, I'm immediately wanting to fiddle around there and there's a couple of elements that like are getting maybe rethemed and will probably get their names changed or stuff just to make them fit into the world but yeah you're absolutely right like in both in Gaslands and in A Billion Suns, I used the world building, the setting creation as a as a wedge to drive through a particularly sticky part of the mid design, the mid game design process where I've got a lot of stuff that seems to be working, but it's not quite gelling together. And then by creating a setting, I kind of find the, the connective musculature that kind of pulls everything together and makes it narratively complete in and, and work in my head whereas in this case it's like well i actually knew exactly what i wanted to do which is i wanted a mass battle regiment game that could function really nicely in about 75 minutes and i got that working and then i was like well cool that as long as the setting has an explanation for why massive armies are constantly smashing into each other and everyone's dying and that's apparently fine we're just going to have another battle maybe even in our campaign like that's all the setting needs to do. It just needs to explain that weirdness. And so it's been fun coming to it 
after the fact and sort of like there are constraints as there as there are with any design process there's some constraints that i'm working within which is <clears throat> sort of the inherited set of fantasy tropes must exist in this world and that's kind of a weird <clears throat> it's a weird thing that i can't escape from because it's not like i can go well do you know what i don't want a bunch of like dungeons and dragons and warhammer style monsters in my thing i'm just going to make up like everyone's elves and it's all about the elves or whatever like i can't do that because i'm, I'm building to a set of armies that people already have or that people are already selling um and a set of expectations that have to be met so it, it's really like <clears throat> i could have just created a continent spread the beastmen over there and the chaos warriors over there and the thing with Gaslands is you're saying, okay, a bunch of people meet up in cars in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, and then they engage in a race. That's a weird thing to do if you're living in a post-apocalyptic wasteland and you're desperately fighting for survival. Why have you decided to race against people? Why aren't you going off and trying to find food and, and scavenging for supplies? Ah, well, that's because there's a massive TV corporation and they're basically going to pay you to race. Mm. And then that pays out an explanation as to how it is that there are things that get dumped on you that can like respawn your vehicles and shoot you ahead of the pack because it's the the overseers giving you things when the audience vote you up so they explain to audience votes and it and it always requires whereas if you say okay there's some orcs and there's some humans and they're going to fight each other pretty much once you said there are some orcs and some humans the rest of that could just be dot 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 what what are they going to do well they're going to fight each other they're going to have a massive war battle obviously they are they're orcs and they're humans and pretty much Everything we know that defines orcs and humans is that they kick the hell out of each other when they get together. That's mm -hmm. basically the, the short, shorthand for them. And so I guess there is a, de a degree with Hobgoblin where it feels like that you there was no necessity to explain the mechanics of what was going on. Once I'm at one side of a tabletop with an army and you're at the other side of a tabletop with an army and they're going to meet in the middle and kick the hell out of each other, I don't need any more explanation than that thank you very much i'm very much aware of, of of why they're there and what their purpose is and why they're going to kick each other to death um so all right personally again when i pick up let's say for example a a, a war machine um sort of mm. textbook one of these things you know things that's yay thick and i open it up and i see that there's like a solid 60 pages of background explanation of the interrelationships of all of these sort of different factions and not just that but this is a story that's been built up for i'm well aware five years or something before i've ever picked the system up mm. i die inside i absolutely really? do you not I do. do you not read do you not read role-playing source books for fun um do you find I, that categorically different yeah i th yeah i think it's i think role-playing books are different because the, in my opinion the world there is the whole purpose of picking it up what i want from you know a malifaux rule book or a war machine rule book is that i want to get interesting things onto the tabletop and then see them in, interact in an interesting way i want to get the clockwork rolling as quickly as possible i don't want you to tell me a story as to why the cogs are turning I yeah but i mean i think i think that's a very personal response to that sort but, of universe because i think that like if you're coming at this which is like hey you know what i really want is i want a really unique like tasty fantasy universe and then i want a game in it and i i, I like toy soldiers the most i would like to play toy soldiers in it but like 
most of the most important thing for me is that like it comes fully realized and it, it's delicious and the artwork is great and when I stick it down it does the things on the table that the, the story tells me it's going to do yeah now I, the thing is I totally agree it is 100% a personal reaction mm. there. that is to, I totally agree that is me that is me personally however that said you know I read a lot of um sort of uh prototype rule sets just on a daily basis because i you know people send me them i give people feedback on their rule sets and from a, a, a i also hear other people's opinions and feedback on things and how much background is too much background is a, a, a very movable feast and there is definite opinions that okay this is too much i so for a board game it's like if there are five pages of background at the start of a set of rules in a board game people are going to come at you with like knives <laughs> and there's like there, there's a there's a very good game um uh sky pirates uh that i that i quite enjoy and i play quite a few times and it's got literally like six a four pages of background that are completely superfluous i don't care in the well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you put that you put point to that because like for example the the third edition of warhammer age of sigma the most recent sort of textbook sized rule book that they put out like clearly games workshop is trying to sell models clearly their their fantasy ip is valuable to them um but that rule book okay it starts with some images and a, and a little bit of fluff text but like it's banging into the rules straight away mm. i think and i'm pretty sure that all the fluff is in the back half of the book which is a pretty standard way of approaching this which is front load the game and then explain the setting which actually as i'm laying out hobgoblin is um not what my initial instincts is which is instead in fact to lay out some first some some something exciting and visceral that sets the tone with a piece of artwork and a piece of like immediate writing that's very in the moment and then to bring in some narrative to sort of explain what the world is like when you're looking at it from ground level and then once you've sort of set the tone and given some people some some sort of roots in is then to sort of unpack the world and explain here's what's going on and why and and why there's conflicts and so forth and then given you having given you the tone and sort of where you are having um what's the word i'm looking for like you know centered you having having oriented you then i give you the army building rules first like a role-playing game would to be like okay so you've probably got a fantasy army i've explained roughly what your guys are probably up to like how do you make your thing and at that point you've got your army you're invested in some way in the world you care about the 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 you care about the struggle and where your army fits in it and then i give you the rules for resolving the, the battles at, at the last i suppose the the i suppose the tricky thing and part of the balancing act and i think in reference to the way that i feel differently about it in a role-playing book is that i could play a you know a, a tabletop mass battle game with with zero world building like mm -hmm. none whatsoever i could still play it it could still function it, it, it's lovely to have the, the the juicy squishiness of why i'm there but i literally don't physically need it whereas in a role-playing game i i it's literally that's what i'm paying i'm paying for a certain amount of world building yeah you know, yeah i mean I, I think that's broadly true i think that there's a there's an there's an old-fashioned way of dungeon crawling and sort of mm -hmm. just wandering out of a village and down a hole of kobolds which i think there, there is another way of doing that but again that's like that's where that's where war games and role-playing games 
divided mm. in the evolutionary tree. So of course they're the same. And I think I think it's interesting sort of mentioning Age of Sigmar there, because I think last time I was playing Age of Sigmar, um, I picked up one of the army books. And I think it was literally like 10 pages at the back of a sort of 70 page book with the actual physical rules that I mm. needed to play the day. And I felt so ripped off by that genuinely <laughs> that I had, it's like why did I pay that much money for a, this pamphlet, pamphlet that right. you've that you've not just tacked on an extra 70 pages to you that you've then hard bound you pay for a hardback book for 10 pages you absolute monster um <laughs> and, I, and I and I and I think that possibly is part of why there's a there's a sort of a balancing act there because it's like look I love have you know I like having the sort of the fluff and 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 I want you to give me options about how much fluff I need to sort of engage with to to enjoy the game but fundamentally what I'm paying you for is to write me some rules I am I'm I'm paying for the rules set I'm not really paying for the for the fluff in my opinion and the the, the fluff is nice but it's not ultimately what I can't make up I can make the fluff up myself I don't think if you gave if you gave me a set of rules with no fluff, I could fill the fluff in. If you gave me a set of fluff with no rules, I can't necessarily go. All right, okay, I'll figure the rules out. It's no problem. I'll, I'll make them up on the fly at the tabletop. And with that, we'll take a quick break. All right. So you said that you, you know, you paid the designer, the writer, money for the rules, not necessarily for the setting. I guess I would put it to you that, like what you're really paying for is a sort of playground it's a sandbox and that sandbox might be filled with more construction equipment or it might be filled with more toys like what what matters is that the whole thing that you get given in and of itself in its complete form is lovely to interact with it's lovely to read it's lovely to to pick up and play and in some cases i suppose like you know you'll you know i'll grab I'll grab a game and I'll want to grab a player and, and be like, the thing that's exciting about this game is X. And sometimes that's the the intricate rules mechanic or the unique thing. But sometimes it's just like, well, here's a world that would be really cool to mess about um, in. Um, and so I do think that, I do think it's perfectly reasonable for it to be, it's probably reasonable for it to be an intrinsic part of the attraction of the game. Um, but I think that probably it isn't more it's it's not more often than it is the central reason do you do you think there's difference between let's say world building and fluff and by what what i mean by that is i feel like the fluff is sort of like okay you need to know how this thing works like what the best tactics to approach this army with is or, or how they're meant to act or how they're meant to behave on the tabletop. I'll give you some fluff to sort of guide you through that. World building is maybe here's a laid and delicious place that you want to interact with and you want to visit and, and that's a, sort of pulling you in. And now here's a game we can play within that brilliant and exciting world. Yeah, that's interesting that you sort of pull those two things apart. I suppose in my head, they were just like more or less impactful or successful versions of each other, or maybe like um, 
like the story, the narrative, the setting is built of these little atoms of like, well, you know, the these this religious order is a bit like this and these um maces are magical and you know these little facts over time add up into world building but pointing in the other direction they also do something as you suggest like really useful which is oh well i know that this mace is probably good against undead because it's an enchanted mace and so like that little piece of setting detail then allows me to remember a piece of game mechanic or intuit uh, a piece of strategical stuff so i think it like i think like you want lots of little bits of descriptive fluff or like explanatory fiction to help you navigate the components of the game and if they do add up to a rich and coherent world then that's the goal right like that's sort of like in a weird way and actually i started i started sort of researching this to a degree in, in, in before i started the hobgoblin fluff like to a degree that's sort of what um flavor text in magic the gathering cards do like they're, they're part of an entire package which is and I, I listened to literally one of the designers of this going through this but like there's the name of the card there's the artwork there's the rules and then there's optionally a piece of flavor text and all of those things have to come together to like instantly convey a convincing sense of what the card is and how it fits in the world and why it fits in your deck and what the, the usage of it is. Just going to give a sort of personal story of, of how my my journey through this with Malifaux to a degree. Mm. So um, first edition Malifaux, uh, I've always been a resurrectionist player in Malifaux and um, Seamus in first edition uh, had... Uh, a, a sort of a, a way of playing that he was basically like the Dark Knight Joker. The more chaos that is going on the tabletop, the more likely you are to win. And the way that it works rules-wise in that particular edition, the game was quite subtle. It wasn't instantly obvious through like looking at his rule set that the more sort of insanity that was going on, the better off you'd be doing. But it's, it was all there in his fluff. It was all there in his storyline. Everything he did, mm. he just basically always turned up, set a bomb off, and then just danced through the chaos that ensued, sort of getting by. And it's there, sort of, as I say, quite subtly within his rules, within his powers and abilities, and realising that if you played him the way that the background said he should be played, you were really, you, you got really good at playing him in that first edition Malifaux. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. That made me so happy, and it really got me into playing that. And then, in my opinion... With each following edition of Malifaux, there's been more and more world building, more and more sort of, oh, there's another sort of 50 pages about Molly Squid Pidge's relationship with Sonia Creed or whatever it happens to be. And less and less of this sort of, this is, this is telling you the way that they will play on the tabletop and guiding mm. you through some quite subtle interactions we've done. And it's much more, well, you know, what that person does, they blow stuff up. So, you know, just min-max, they're blowing stuff up and you'll be absolutely fine. And that game lost me as it put in more world building and for me gave less respect to the fluff. And that's just, that's, that's literally my, my personal sort of, relationship and journey through that what I felt like that changeover was from the very first edition of Malifaux where there's very little world um, 
and sort of very mechanics orientated and a beautiful, I always thought, relationship between the fluff and the mechanics. And I feel that that just died to a point where what we've got is a really competitive, crunchy, hardcore game that has like a novel stapled on the top of it. You like the yeah. novel, right? And you like the game, right? So brilliant. Enjoy. Um, yeah, no, that's super interesting because it sort of speaks to um, like the efficiency, the the utility of having that narrative, having that setting in the context of the form, which is a tabletop game. And I guess like reflecting on, on my most my most recent obsession um, at the moment is uh, is Elden Ring on the PlayStation. And like every sort of moment, every moment of story, every like thing that I am told, every piece of like, inconsequential stuff that comes out like I'm analyzing it for more clues because it's quite an opaque setting and it doesn't just explain itself you you have to and so in in that way like moving through the game understanding the game being better at the game is sort of similarly like that setting efficiency if you like or like the 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 richness of the setting in that first edition Malifaux is that it's intrinsically linked to the form itself. It's not stapled on the top, as you say. Um, yeah, but I guess I'd, I'd still return to like, there's no reason for enormous army books to have all this sort of background setting information for Warhammer 40,000, for example. But there is a lot of genuine pleasure from gamers, including me and like, understanding and learning more about digging down into this universe because then when i do put things on the table yes they probably they probably feel like minor betrayals if they don't do the thing that they did in the story or that you've been told that they do and there's definitely it's critical that they do that but at the same time like the story can bring meaning to the action on the table um in a way that i think is quite satisfying it's, it's almost it's almost harder to do that that bigger thing in a in that second thing in a in a character driven high, tight narrative game like Malifaux. Like the the problem with Malifaux's tight skirmish, uh, sorry, tight character focus was that like there is everyone's playing Molly Squidgepiddle. Like why is there so much go happening to this woman when she clearly only does these like six things because we can see them they're written down in the story, whereas like. What are these chaos warriors up to? Well, they're up to a completely different thing to these chaos warriors. And I already told you about these other chaos warriors that were doing something completely different. And like, there's just a lot more latitude for you to say, all right, well, cool chaos warrior stuff that has happened in the setting. I'm going to bring a cocktail of that into my game table and that will enrich the experience. And I suppose my hope with the Hobgoblin thing is that um, the setting then adds a new layer of meaning, a fresh layer of meaning onto the battles and onto the armies um, and very very specifically inspires you to do new things like to build a new kind of um, terrain to wants to build a board that and this is like this I find is what Warhammer 40,000 does so phenomenally well with its setting information is it's very rare that I will put down a Warhammer 40,000 book be it an army book or or one of the campaign books for like adeptus titanicus and not immediately want to build a new gaming table to like represent one of the cool um, biomes or scenario or sort of planets that they've that they've put in the setting so 
and and hobgoblin itself is very much about breathing fresh life into into armies that might have got stale and so i think doing the same thing by providing an, a sort of atypical slanted fantasy setting and saying well because these are elves but they're underground that breathes new meaning into this army it gives you new ways to fight new things to fight over new situations that you can imagine like now there's rocks falling from the thing and now there's you know now there's ways of escaping through tunnels and so forth and it can be mechanically represented but at its heart my hope is just that it sort of makes you excited to pick up an old army or or build a new one and be like oh cool i've never thought about doing like subterranean lava um orcs let's do those we'll be back in just a second i guess the obvious question is you know mike in mm. what way is there anything you you sit down you basically write a amateur fantasy novel and you give everybody some fantasy names and you give the places some other fantasy generic names and then you attach that to a bunch of rules and that's brilliant everyone's got a a, a fantasy novel lurking somewhere inside them possibly one that they wrote when they were 14 and has a lot of stabbing in it um you know how how is this not a thing that's basically this surely this is this is the easy mode part of when you're you're writing this is the fun bit before you get to doing crunchy difficult maths to do with how you know to balance the combat between units why why is that not the situation i agree it's not but why well, <laughs> well i mean it probably it probably is for some people um i suppose this like unless you are unless you are particularly uh, broadly skilled i think you're always going to be minded towards or, or more capable in one area or another and so i imagine that there are plenty of game designers who are working with more of a sure hand on the fictional setting than they are on the mechanical equipment of the game um but yeah for me i'm less practiced at this so i found that um turning my hands to a richer setting sort of stretched some muscles that i hadn't really had to stretch before and so um i guess to, to wind back a little bit like how did i start this process well um the the first thing that i did was i wrote down a bunch of um well actually i suppose the first thing i did was i sort of just had a conversation with some friends and i sort of threw some ideas around and they didn't really go anywhere so i went away and i had to think about what the problems were that i was bumping into that and then i wrote a <clears throat> i guess kind of like a, a, a page and a half sort of quite quickly telling myself what the setting might be and so i'd kind of come up with come up with a few ideas in my notebook and discarded them and um then wrote down this sort of i guess like you know the sort of the lame first page and a half from like the 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 background setting in your rpg like really exposition-y there's no skill or um craft in it and then from that point, actually, the first thing that I did after that was draw a little map. So my setting, as I talked about a little bit in the last episode, my setting for Hobgoblin um, is set beneath the frozen wasteland of a fantasy world and nothing lives on the frozen surface. And indeed, very little lives in the frozen catacombs of the first, you know, 100 miles or whatever. 
And then as it starts to get lower and deeper and darker, but warmer, you find the bulk of the fantasy setting in endless labyrinthine caverns and uh, tunnels and enormous caverns holding all kinds of mystical and weird stuff, um, all lit by candlelight and bioluminescent fungus. And then as you get lower and lower and lower, um, it starts to get warmer and warmer as you get close to the core. And so at the base of the setting, you find, you know, fire demons and magnifants, whatever those are, and, you know, giant spiders that live in magna pools and probably some kind of infernal dwarfs that use, you know, all the lava to power their, their vast machines and so on and so forth. So I drew a little sort of schematic, a sort of plan of that world sort of like a you know just any world map it's just that i was like oh well cool my conceit is instead of a world map being flat you turn it on its side and you're sort of looking at cross section like an ant's nest um what can we do with that um and that sort of sketched out a few very crummy ideas of like the sort of stuff that i wanted to be in the world um and then i guess i hit i hit a bit of a brick wall at that point and um uh, the person that I'm working with to get it published said what would be really cool is if this wasn't filled with exposition but was told from like the from the from the the eye the eye level of the halberdsman like like let's see what it feels like to sort of wander around in this realm which fits really nicely with um, as I've talked about before, like quite often when I'm exploring a setting that I'm inventing, I will go and role play in that setting because I literally want to, or as close to literally as I can, want to walk around and sort of poke it and see what happens and have to be forced to in, like open a door and be forced to imagine and invent what's behind that door. Um, and those skills of, you know, both playing and GMing role playing games end up being very very adjacent to the imaginative act of being like hmm let's draw a little castle here what do we know about this castle okay let's make up some things that we know about this castle yeah and then so so this this idea of like what does it look like from the halberdsman's eye line got me to start writing um I guess what I was sort of approaching as microfiction, which is like, can I tell a little bubble of a moment that happens inside this world? Can I just sort of have a little fight or an interaction or someone running away or somebody walking into an area? And so I started listening actually um, to uh, podcasts and interviews about the sort of flavor text that you find in Magic the Gathering, because I wanted to understand a little bit about how people who write micro fiction think and i read um, a really interesting article from a video game designer the, the person who made um cultist generator and cultist generator is filled with these teeny little moments of um uh, these moments of description which sort of gently reveal the world to you piece by piece and i was wondering was this how is this how my book hobgoblin is going to reveal the world um and honestly i found that act of writing little moments of fiction excruciatingly difficult because I've spent a lot of my life writing incredibly technical prose, um, you know, descriptive, technical descriptions of things for my work or war game rules, which are themselves highly technical language. And I just didn't know what the, I didn't know what the pieces, like I didn't know how fiction writing even works. Like I've never sort of critically under, like analyzed and understood, like how is this set of sentences in a fantasy or fiction um, book 
functioning to communicate meaning to me. Um, and so I, I wrote a bunch of bad fiction and then got some um, some lovely feedback on it um, from a friend to try and sort of help uh, sharpen those muscles. But the act of like forcing myself to put imagination into words kind of it reduced the uncertainty to little moments of certainty. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure now that there's a castle like a white shining keep on a mirrored lake and that's somehow underground and like trying to like having resolved that image on my mind it's like okay I've got one landmark like let what's nearby that <laughs> the other thing is I and this is this is no joke as I was in the beginnings of this really trying to explain it my uh my two girls uh who are five and to demand a makeup story every night before they go to bed so I just started telling the makeup story set in this underground world that I was working on and I was sort of took the opportunity to explain it to my five-year-old on the on the way down to school just to sort of see if anything that I said got her excited or anything that I was saying got um got me excited and so I guess that goes back to that first point of like I do quite a lot of world building through conversations with people I suppose one of the things I think that's tricky, one of the traps that people fall into, I think, possibly, is that it's easy to be quite self-indulgent when you're writing your fantasy world. It's it's sort of, it's the thing that makes bad teenage poetry bad teenage poetry. It's the thing <laughs> of, you know, I don't, there, there aren't hard technical things to learn here. I write whatever comes into my head. I write until I think I've completed the, the, the story that I'm telling and then it, and that'll be great and nobody can sort of really judge it. Whereas I think the, the, the thing to accept is that there are serious skills and techniques and technical, you know, abilities to, to find within the writing of the flavor text and the world background in exactly the same way as there is for writing the rules. There are serious things. And I think one of the things that's particularly interesting for me personally about um, background text for uh, a rule set is that it has serious technical jobs to do. Mm -hmm. It has to, for example, or on the simplest level, explain why these people are fighting those people you know um and why they're constantly fighting them like all they ever do with their lives seems to be fighting them and also i think one of the things that's interesting is that you particularly in a fantasy uh war game setting you have to explain why it is that humans are fighting humans and, and orcs are fighting orcs like warhammer fantasy battle i think as a background setting is brilliant for this because there's always a good reason why mm. two forces that are of the same like race or group or whatever would actually be for every single Warhammer fantasy battle race has got these inbuilt conflicts. And to the point where it's like, after you've read like the 12th different sort of background book that explains why these people also have constant civil wars going on. It's a bit like, it's a coincidence. There's 12 different races, all which have a differently motivated with civil wars any given moment. But it's it's it, that's because somebody somewhere has gone, okay, look, this background has to do a job, it has to do a serious job, it has to explain why this you would you would assume 
that the Empire in Warhammer, given the ongoing apocalypse that is occurring within that, that particular universe, given that they are assailed on all sides by all manner of horrifying and, and terrible monsters, they would be like absolutely unified at all points. They would You'd never consider stabbing another human being. Right, exactly as you find in the real world, Glenn. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, the number is, yeah, of hill demons that are attacking, you know, Britain is minimal. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you would think, you know, you know what, if there was an actual horned demon with big wings and a flaming sword who occasionally turned up and hacked Boris Johnson's head off, I might feel differently about whether or not, you know, to, to, to collaborate to make sure that happens. Yes. Um, but... You know, but a fantasy setting, a fantasy war game setting has to say, yeah, despite all that, still occasionally, you know, a brother. Yeah, and so and so the way that that the way that that manifests beyond the obvious, which is like continually asking myself questions like, where are the have I got enough battles? Like, is this is this is this have I have I explained this um, like conflict well enough? Is that as I was writing, like, you know, because, because you know, to, to a degree, I was just writing this fiction to get it out of my brain to just to be like, well, let me just, just try, let's just try writing some of this stuff. And so I was walking through Canterbury and I, um, for those uh, gentle readers who um, know Canterbury, it has running through a, an, an ancient little uh, river, which runs under a bridge and you can take a little punting boat under the bridge and you can sort of look underneath this, um, old friars hospital uh, and and look at the, the strange um, sort of dribbly little stalactites that sit underneath it and so I, I like I love that particular bit of Canterbury like that's just a very um, enchanting area so I immediately just started writing a little bit about you know this sort of rogue character who's gently like silently paddling a boat hears a sound you know maybe there's some some she's going to be found out because somebody's opened a toilet and she's trying to get to her like her buddy to get some news that they've been discovered so that they can escape from the underground city before they get captured by the new like the guards have been bought out by the new ruler who's just turned up with a bunch of coin and now everything's up in arms and it's like actually completing that thing and going through the effort of making that work like it's just going to get cut out it serves no purpose it's the wrong sort of it's the wrong kind of story because it doesn't serve any net like that would be great in uh, hobgoblin the role-playing game where it's all about sneaking around towns and, and doing jobs for coin but this isn't anything to do with that and so i guess it's partly that it uh, is your fiction aren't answering the right questions but also like just making sure that the scale and the scope and the subject matter is exactly what it needs to be because the world building is a very intoxicating um, thing where, you know, I can go off and figure out exactly what kind of fungus beer they brew. And I can go over here and find out exactly how they make cartwheels when they don't have any wood underground. Um, some of which might directly be relevant, but much of it is just like, it's just nonsense and it's just self-indulgent and um for me, some of that self-indulgence is fine because it's giving me the confidence to speak about this world that I'm creating, but it doesn't necessarily have to end up being words that everyone else has to suffer through. Yeah, I think there is um I think there's a point where it's like, okay, if if I'm if I'm enjoying this bit of writing too much, I should maybe be a teeny bit afraid of it because <laughs> 
<laughs> if, I'm, if I'm really enjoying this, it might be no good to anybody other than me, you know. And that's not to say that it's like, oh, it should all be a slog and you should be doing things and going, well, this must be a good thing because it's absolutely horrible to be. I'm hating every minute of it, so it must be genius. Doesn't by any means follow, but I think certainly there are times when you're like, I, I. I'm really enjoying creating my little world. Maybe to sort of try and track yourself back to what your job here is and what you're trying to do. That seems like a good place to take a quick break. It, it reminds me to a degree of um, a story, I think I related to you when you were talking about the world building for Hobgoblin, um, in relation to um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Mm. Uh, so there was a chap who um, put together all the references in relation to Ankh-Morpork, uh, the sort of big city in the Discworld, and mapped out Ankh-Morpork because it said, okay, this, win this guy shoots an arrow at this guy in this building, so this thing needs to be visible from there. And he mapped out the whole city, and it's lovely, and they published it. And then what he went on from that point to do was he then tried to do a map of the Discworld based on references of, okay, this town is this distance from that town, and you can see a mountain from here, and et cetera, et cetera. And he mapped it all out, and he's very happy, and he went off to Terry Pratchett to say, oh, I've mapped out the world now as well, can we publish this? And apparently Terry Pratchett went, I mean, sure, maybe, but just out of curiosity, let's give it to a geologist, you know, um, and the geologist went, Oh, well, this is horrible. This is absolutely terrible. You can't have a mountain there in a desert there. That desert would definitely be a swamp. And you can't have a swamp in, you know, one of the places that a lot of people, I think, start with their world building is everyone likes to sit down and draw a map. Great mm -hmm. fun drawing a map. The thing is that maps follow rules, very strict and very specific rules as to it's what magic, man. Magic made it. It's <laughs> magical desert. <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing. If if the whole structure of your world is literally created and maintained, mind you, by magic, it's not just that magic made the desert. Magic then continued to shelter the desert from the rain runoff from the mountain over there. And everywhere you walk in this world, there are magical force fields that don't let water through and and siphon off the water table underground to somewhere else then you better include that into your world building because that's a weird phenomenon to be going on in that world. <laughs> and I mean, I just say that in order to reference back to the fact that, you know, a lot of these things that are damn good fun when you're putting them together and very jolly when it's for yourself and you're just drawing a map and then you're going to role play it. None of your friends are going to go, just a moment, that freshwater lake, wouldn't that have salt water in it? Well, you, you know. If you're going to sort of put it out into the world uh, and you're sort of trying to build something upon it. And, and also, I'm a big believer, personally, that the sort of the great writers and the great novelists know, know the thing that you haven't asked them, that they put in the research and they put in the work. And it might never come up in the book that a certain thing is true, but they do know the mechanics that you know Tolkien is a great example I think of somebody who knew an awful lot about the world he was writing about that he never put into any of the books because you know and I think but I, th I think he's I think he's one of the few I don't believe this I know that we're just we're just acting on faith here like I don't believe that to be true I I, I feel like it's more likely that writers are clearly researching things as they go along to make sure that there are accurate details but I think that I think that Tolkien represents 
a bizarre obsession because he worked on this one fantasy world for his entire adult life without pause or like he didn't he didn't make several he'd like he didn't do a he didn't do six books in one and then six books in something completely different like I mean, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to be sort of disparaging of any author's work, but what I would say is, I mean, you can take as an example J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. um, and there are repeated points in in the Harry Potter universe where the explanation is magic, mm. magic happens, doesn't it? And throughout those books, you can feel like there's an underlying sense of, I don't, I don't really need to figure out how even magic works. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It's not like it's another form of, of physics or something. It just cheats. It just cheats all the time. And we can just cheat at any point we want to. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, and everyone has different tastes, and obviously they're massively popular books. I'm one, you know, the, I'm one of those people who sort of always feels ripped off when I feel like the author is cheating. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, personally, I think that the more that the author knows why their universe isn't cheating, why it isn't breaking the rules, um, you know, the better the fiction that they're listen. I, listen, I, I I read Greg Egan novels like the best of them, so I'm 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 with you. I'm with you on it. I, I suppose it's it's let it's maybe it was a reaction to the best authors have a lot have a good sense of what's underneath. I think there is a really great kind of author that has a really strong sense of the internal coherence of their world and has thought about all of these things and I imagine there are also very popular and skilled authors who are incredibly seat of their pants and don't really um care how the world necessarily is assembled I don't I'm not like the one that pops to mind although I have no evidence either way is um the Vore novels um by was it Brian Caitlin is his name I think like that just has a real seat of your pants Set like that stuff's just happening. It's just a, happening all over the place. It doesn't really matter. Like it's just you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's tastes and smells and um, it doesn't the it, it feels like an artistic work where the internal structure is much less relevant than the sort of it's it's a dream reality more than a and I think so, that's okay. I think like there's nothing intrinsically erroneous about that approach. Sure, and and I would say is. In relation to the difference between being a novelist and writing, you know, fiction for a tabletop game, mm. you know, possibly there are some novelists, and I would, I like, you know, novelists, novelists who can do this are incredibly skilled in their craft and are professional novelists with, you know, years of, of training and crafting and building those abilities, and maybe they can get away with doing it in that fashion. But A, that's what they do, and they are incredibly skilled in that craft. And B, their novels aren't, as I say, doing a uh, a scaffolding, structure-building process for another thing. You know, the, the, the narrative... Well, actually, that, that's a super interesting point, actually, which is... Um... To some degree, the world building has to be the the world has to be built in a way that it is accessible for others to build in, because just like in a role playing game where the games master has to invent the scenarios and the campaigns, like you as players have to invent reasons for your um, for your armies to exist. And so, if for example, it's a 
you know, nightmarish, dream reality, Dante's Inferno sort of setting for a war game where, you know, the selling point is literally any miniatures can be horribly converted to be some sort of, you know, you know, every army has like, it's based on some kind of like primal uh, sin. And so, you know, you have to map, like, that would be really difficult. Like, that's a really tricky thing to build an army for like compared to like there are four kinds of elves and you can paint them green blue black or another blue where that's like much easier for people to get hold of and it's like well there are some places and you can get ships between them and i can just understand all of that yeah and i, and I think that this yeah it should be said i think that that has to be within, accessible in the way that you write it, I suppose. Or yeah, within the sort of fiction that is useful for the job that is being done hmm. when you are writing fiction for a you know for a game system, I think it's necessary to have a nuts and bolts sort of understanding of the world that you're creating, uh, and some of the practicalities of you know what have driven various people to various places and to do various things. And I do think that if you can get away with magic made it happen, you know, if you are an incredibly skilled novelist and you know it doesn't matter, no one's going to be looking in that direction, you know, I'm going to send them over there so I can just but those skills and abilities are incredibly refined and difficult to get to and also people aren't playing within their novels aren't inhabiting their novels in the way that people are inhabiting a setting for a tabletop game and I think because of that you have to do a much more in my opinion I think you have to do a sort of more workmanlike job and you need to understand more of the crunchy bits of the world that you're writing to this, yeah, th this conversation makes me want to learn more about, well, I'd, I'd love to know if there is writing about, for video game design, like how you approach the narrative and the world building for, you know, sort of a more linear narrative game, like a kind of, you know, like an, advent an, a, a, an adventure game like Uncharted or something, versus the work that you have to do for a kind of open world RPG thing. Because presumably there are books written about like how you write a Fallout world versus a, an Uncharted world. Because I, I imagine they're, they're they're extremely different. Different, and that really like the Enchanted world, the Enchanted, Enchanted, Uncharted world Uncharted. building. In my mind, feels more like the stuff that you'd have to do for a novel or maybe even for a movie versus like what you need for Fallout or Elden Ring, which feels more like, you know, an RPG setting book or a, or a, or a war game setting. But I might, I might be misreading that, but makes me want to know more about that. Yes, well, it is a serious and hard craft and there are genuine jobs you are trying don't to- Don't listen to us. <laughs> No, I mean, this is, yeah, this, this, as, as Mike caveated at the start, this is the sort of thing that we're less expert in than the other things that we've made comments on. Not that I'm going to say that we're expert in any of the things we've ever said here, but this is, this is a world in which, you know, uh, Mike's sort of feeling his way through more than either of us have um, at any point previously. Um, and, you know, you're doing a lot of 
looking into various things like we we had a conversation um the other day about the fact that you're working through the place name creation and the language generation yeah and i, and I discovered there's a whole sub community of for, to, for doing a thing called con language conlang which is constructed languages um and one can there there is there's very well established templates for creating a um uh, a library of uh of phonetic sounds that are that are used by your language and then a range of uh sort of uh, what's the word syllable constructions and then like your syntax and your grammar structure and blah 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 um and which of course i immediately went this looks like a lot of work where's the generator conlang generator people that's uh, how you get how you google that but it, but you know but at the same time there is a genuine thing where making up a place name that sounds like an actual place name without doing sort of river ford and you know yeah well it's yeah and it turns out it turns out because i'm approaching it from this map backwards perspective that um the place names are the things that i'm sort of obsessing with early doors but do you know what like obsessing about the places and the relationships between the places and the names of the places and therefore who owns the place that's led me a lot to a lot of the imaginative work of trying to assemble the conflicts and 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 so forth so i mean i, I guess it sort of doesn't matter which route in you go but for me it was like trying to invent place names helped me concretize um so yeah i think if there are conclusions to be had here um it's that there are there are specific jobs that your fiction and your world building need to do and try to keep your eye on those and not mm. stray too far into the sort of slightly self-indulgent end of i'm going to write a story about you know jimmy's adventure within or, this or, or do stray into that but just remember to cut it out again <laughs> well yes yes do it do it for your because i don't think it's worth i don't think it's worth a worthless activity going through that self-indulgence because it might no. be something it's just you've got to remember to cut it out again yeah i mean do, do it for yourself for your own sort of burnished um understanding of the world that you're sort of creating and and maybe understanding the places that the game has to go but maybe don't necessarily force everybody else to read it um or at least force your your publisher to to put in an extra sort of 50 pages to uh to a book in order to allow it to exist um you know be aware of the possibility of self-indulgence um don't sort of fish out the 500 page novel that you did write as a teenager and go well this is a work of genius now we have um, to write rules you know to, to explain it to people um and yeah you know uh, think about the ways in which think about the things you're saying are happening in your fiction and how they relate to what your game allows people to do on the tabletop um because that's the place i personally always come at the sort of game fiction from if you say i can do x i want to be able to do x and if you say that doing x is a good idea i want it to be a good idea mm -hmm. um you know one of the one of my persistent pet hates is when you read um sort of game fiction and it says that you know person a defeats person b and then person b defeats person c and person c and it just goes in this continual chain of everybody being awesome all of the time it's like somebody somewhere has to get their head kicked in because i've put them on the tabletop and he gets his head kicked in believe you me he doesn't defeat everybody all of the time 
Um, other than that, I think it's probably therefore a good place to, to round this conversation out. Um, Mike is still and will be for the near future um, in a process of ongoing world creation. So mm. if anybody watching this video has some um, tickly or crunchy or interesting questions about world creation, if you've got any splendid advice for Mike as he's going through this um, spiky little little journey, please drop that into the Yeah, useful, useful blog posts or book recommendations, greatly appreciated. Absolutely. Um, if you have watched to this point, um, I assume you like some point of what part of what we're doing, please do like and subscribe. And like I say, drop us some comments in relation to, you know, world building, your favourite sort of level of text within a, within a game. You know, when is a game sort of put in too much? When is it put in not enough? When is it absolutely nailed in built a world that you you can't help wanting to to live and frolic and murder in um other than that look us up on social media um for now though i think we'll sign off on this episode of rule of carnage so uh we'll say thank you and goodbye so, bye bye, -bye.